Good morning. I'm Shamita Basu. And I'm Duarte Geraldino. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue has emerged in recent days as the center of its own outbreak. President Trump is now back at the White House after spending several days at Walter Reed Medical Center. Standing on the steps of the residence last night in front of reporters and TV cameras, the president removed his mask and waved before turning around and heading inside. And that's where we start today, with the people who share that residence with the president, the staffers, the people who clean the building, place floral arrangements, cook the food. They are the White House's essential workers. The Washington Post and The Atlantic both have articles that look at the men and women who have these jobs and what it means to be working at the White House in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, and both of these news outlets reached out to Kate Anderson Brower. She's written three books about the White House, including The Residence, which is based on interviews with a ton of folks who used to work there. Now, the White House has more than 90 full-time House staff. And according to Brower, they work very closely with the first family, more so than practically anyone else. As The Atlantic describes it, they ride elevators with the first couple, they iron their clothes, they change their sheets, deliver their meals, they escort them across the White House grounds. They're butlers, valets, housekeepers, chefs. A lot of them are Black and Latino. Some of them have worked in their roles for decades, across administrations, regardless of politics or party. And many of them describe a sense of pride in working for the institution and for the country. Discretion is a key part of their jobs. The Atlantic reports, even in normal times, the people who work on the White House grounds are very cautious about talking to the media. But the Washington Post spoke with Obama's head chef for six years, and he expressed concern for his colleagues still in the White House. Now, with the virus spreading in closed presidential circles, he says these essential workers are also putting their lives on the line. The Atlantic spoke with one worker, on condition of anonymity, who said the last few days have felt chaotic inside the White House, and he's worried for his own safety, but also for the safety of his family and friends. There are several closed Senate races that could potentially tip the balance of power in D.C., Senate Republicans are defending 23 seats this cycle. Most election watchers have nine races on their radar. Today, we look at two. North and South Carolina both have incumbent Republican senators who currently serve on the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is set to hold confirmation hearings for President Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Amy Coney Barrett. Let's start with North Carolina. Republican incumbent Tom Tillis was elected in 2014 to his first term in office there, and it was a tight race. He won by about one percentage point. His opponent this year is a former state senator and Iraq war veteran, Democrat Cal Cunningham. Public polling showed Cunningham with a consistent lead over Tillis. He also outraised him. Cunningham has raised more than $28 million in three months. That's more than double what Tillis raised since he was first elected, according to The Washington Post. But there were some major developments in the race during the last week. The Charlotte Observer helps break it all down. On the very same day we learned Senator Tillis tested positive for COVID-19 and planned to pause all his campaign events, there were reports... Cunningham was exchanging romantic text messages with a woman who is not his wife. Now, Cunningham, who is married with two kids, confirmed the texts are real. He said he's sorry about what he did, but 
He also said he will not drop out of the race. Recent polls show the favorability of both candidates is taking a hit. Okay, let's turn to South Carolina. Republican incumbent Lindsey Graham, who's been in the Senate since 2003, is running against the former chair of the South Carolina Democratic Party, Jamie Harrison. South Carolina is normally reliably red and still likely to go Republican this fall. But this race has gotten closer than pundits expected. Recent polling shows the race is very competitive. The state, a local South Carolina paper, has the latest developments. Graham and Harrison had their first debate over the weekend. Harrison criticized federal and state leaders for how they're handling the pandemic. The Senate failed to act. The the White House failed to act. The governor failed to act. We need leaders who are going to step up and act. Harrison also attacked Graham, who is the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, for reversing course after Graham said back in 2016 that he would oppose a Supreme Court nomination during a presidential election. Now, for his part, Graham sought to portray Harrison as beholden to Democratic Party leaders like House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. He also brought up recent protests and promised to support law enforcement. My liberal Democratic friends never mentioned the virus when people are roaming around the streets rioting and burning down cop cars and breaking windows. A Quinnipiac poll at the end of September found Republicans in South Carolina are looking for a so-called law and order candidate, while Democrats are looking for someone to get the coronavirus pandemic under control. There's some news out of the Supreme Court that could impact the race in South Carolina. Just yesterday, the high court decided to reinstate a South Carolina voting requirement that requires witness signatures on absentee ballots. In June, a district judge had determined there were no signs of absentee fraud in the state's primaries. If you're a South Carolina voter who's voting by mail, as long as your ballot is received by this Wednesday at the latest, you won't need a signature. Anything received later than that is going to need one to be counted. It's Nobel Prize Week, when awards are given to people who've made the biggest contributions in a variety of fields, from the sciences to literature to peace. The week started with the Prize for Physiology, or medicine. It went to three researchers who identified the hepatitis C virus. Today, the Physics Prize was announced. It went to three scientists for their discoveries about black holes. Now, one of those scientists is Andrea Ghez. Now, she joined a very small club. Out of the 215 people ever awarded the physics prize, she is only the fifth woman to do so. NPR reports since the Nobel Committee first began handing out awards in 1901 through last year, less than 3% of the physics winners have been women. For the prize in medicine, it's less than 6%. One researcher crunched the numbers on all past recipients of science Nobel Prizes. The overwhelming majority of them have been white men. Only 20 have been women. She told NPR that's not proportional to the number of women who work in these fields, which suggests that women are strongly underrepresented among science Nobel laureates. It's a trend critics say points to a flaw in the nomination process. Nobels are notoriously awarded based on the secretive, by-invitation-only nomination process, which means it's still very much an insider's club. On the positive side, NPR reports the trend line is changing. Still, as we applaud this year's victors, the Nobel Prizes are a good reminder of the biases that women face in the sciences. 
1972, NASA launched a map into space that could lead extraterrestrials to Earth from anywhere in the galaxy. It included a depiction of humans, a spacecraft, and then a galactic map pinpointing the location of Earth. It's become a popular image. You might have seen it on a t-shirt, maybe even as a tattoo. The map itself was designed by an astronomer named Frank Drake. But now, Drake's daughter, Nadia Drake, writes in National Geographic that the map's symbols, well, they might not be relevant in a few million years. The map looks kind of like an asterisk, with each of the lines connecting Earth to different pulsars, which are celestial objects that emit electromagnetic radiation. But the pulsars he chose will eventually fade and disappear in a few million years, which is not very long given the history of the galaxy. So now, Nadia Drake's partner, who's also an astronomer, is creating a new map. This one includes millisecond pulsars, which last way longer than the ones on her dad's map. Now, there are no plans to send this new map into space anytime soon, but Drake says if we really want to give intelligent alien creatures a fighting chance at finding us in the universe, they'll need this more accurate map to point them in the right direction. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. We'll talk with you again tomorrow.